Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. And look, we're in the middle of our kids' heavy-duty sports and water polo season. I mean, when are we not? But what we're seeing is the coolers of Gatorade and Powerade at sporting events. And this causes us to pull our hair out. For a couple of reasons. Yeah. One, obviously, the single-use plastic bottle has got to get out of youth sports. I mean, that is just, just trash. Yeah. We're just jamming those things into dolphins' eyeballs, Right. No wonder the orcas are so mad. Second is that that stuff doesn't actually help your athletes play. It is overly sugared water that actually dehydrates your athletes. So if you're trying to get your kid to like have some electrolytes, that is not the solution. We and know it doesn't help them recover. That's right. We know that. Look, of course, intra-session carbohydrate really works, but not this. It's at a, a sugar solution that actually pulls water out of your system. And all the colors, all the, there's so much crap in there. If you're serious about trying to help your athletes replace some electrolytes, try Element. So tasty. It works. It's very effective and total solution. You're going to save the world and actually have something that our elite athletes use. We give Element out and have turned on so many world champions, elite cyclists into Element, plus our athlete friends. I'm telling you, if you want to do what the best is doing, it's Element. Yeah, and Element tastes good, so kids like it. It comes in a small little single-serving pack that can just be added to any kid's already existing water bottle. And it's a really effective and tasty solution for kids. So, Or, or you can just so, have your kid be slower. If you want your kid to be slower and less awesome at sport, and you want to make sure that dolphins have no eyes, then you should stick with Gatorade. But if otherwise, you, want, want otherwise you should switch to Element. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS and help your kid be awesome. More awesome. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are delighted to welcome Colleen and Jason Walkup. They are the co-founders and co-CEOs of MindBody Green, the leading independent media brand dedicated to well-being with 15 million monthly new unique visitors. Jason is also the host of the popular MindBody Green podcast and the best-selling author of Wealth, How I Learned to Build a Life, Not a Resume. He has been featured in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Fast Company, Business Insider, and Vogue, and has a BA in history from Columbia University, where he played varsity basketball for four years. He and his wife, Colleen, live in Miami with their two daughters, Ellie and Grace, and in his spare time, he loves walking to get hot black coffee. And Colleen, after graduating from Stanford, spent 10 years working at Fortune 500 companies, including Gap, Walmart, and Amazon, before devoting her life's work to Mind Body Green. She's a prolific speaker, and her new passion that brings her joy, pickleball, which I can respect. So this was such a fun conversation. And as you'll hear in the episode, we have so much in common with these two, not just sort of tactically in terms of how our lives have gone, but just sort of how we've evolved in our philosophy about health and fitness and wellness and what matters um, and have such similar evolutions in our thinking about what's important to take care of this carcass that is our body. Yeah. And, you know, what you'll see is that we have have had similar kind of health issues that sort of focused us into kind of, you know, highlighting how we ended up here from a back injury to my neck injury. But also I do love that while we sort of are so similar, we're also kind of stereo isomers a little bit mm -hmm. in so much that 
you know, they also are thinking a little bit differently about the problems and a little bit more focused on community, a little bit more focused on sort of the sense of self and the psycho-emotional journey that is required for us to feel better. Yeah, and one of their sort of core philosophies is that whatever it is you do from a health standpoint needs to be something that brings you joy. Um, because versus, that means versus the way we like it. to train. Yeah, and, and I think we've created this culture where so much of these, you know, practices that we recommend to people are devoid of joy and in fact are more about restriction and disconnection. And I love that they're really trying to bring that piece of it back into the conversation here. If you view how you're working with your spouse or partner, imagine working with them. I think this is also a great conversation about that, as you and I kind of talk about a lot, that it's pretty extraordinary that we get to work together. Everyone, I think you're going to really love this convo. Delightful, smart people making a change and have been doing it for a long time. We're going to talk about their book, Joy of Wellbeing. Please enjoy this podcast. Colleen and Jason, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. So great to be here. We are such big fans of your work, so it's an honor. So I want to start by saying I feel like you guys are our doppelgangers in the universe. East Coast, West Coast. East Coast. You guys are like East Coast starettes, and we're, you know, the West Coast version of you two. Jason, you have way more hair than I do, but it's it still yeah. balances out in the universe. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like we have, in many ways, similar origin stories in terms of the ways that we both came into sort of this health wellness fitness space. And so I know there's two of you, but if you could both maybe tell us a little bit about, I'd love to talk about Mind Body Green, of course, but what led both of you to working in this space that you're in, which I would sort of universally describe as like health, wellness, fitness, generally? Those are the worst terms, aren't they? Yeah, I know. Sometimes we're like, wow, that's just, these are the words that describe what we do. That's why we like well-being. And we have a couple of whys. I have two. You know, my why has changed in the 13 years since my Buddy Green or 14 years my Buddy Green has been around. And so initially it came from yoga saving me from back surgery. So I was an ex-college athlete. I played basketball at Columbia 25 years ago, worked on Wall Street for a little bit. That's what you did back then. Became an entrepreneur and found myself running a startup that wasn't doing well. And I flew over 100,000 miles domestic in one year. I am six foot seven. Me in a coach seat is terrible for the person in front of me and for me, my lower back. And so the flying, the stress of the startup not doing well, and an old basketball injury led to two extruded discs in my lower back, the classic L4, L5, S1. You know it well. So the excruciating sciatica in my right leg was like a lightning rod. I couldn't walk. Walking is literally like one of my favorite things to do in life. If I don't get my 10,000 steps a day, I'm a grumpy dinosaur. So I couldn't do that. And Colleen, were you guys together at this time? We were dating. Yeah. We were dating. And she's, yeah, I was, I'm like, I'm a loser. I can't walk. I knew she was a keeper. <laughs> My company's doing terrible. I'm about to be broken. I can't walk. I love you. <laughs> and so went to a doctor and he said, you need back surgery. I'm looking at the MRI. I need back surgery. And I have nothing against surgery, but generally see it as last resort. And as you know, well, the success rates with back surgery typically aren't great. So I sought a second opinion. That doctor said the same thing. You know, we tried cortisol shots too. That didn't work. It was almost like an afterthought. He's like, you know, maybe some yoga or therapy could help. And Colleen and I were dating and she had a yoga practice. It was like, all right, I'll give this, I'll give this a shot. Little light yoga, nothing serious. Had you done yoga before? A little bit, but like. You were an athlete, so you didn't do yoga. I was an athlete. And, you know, five to 10 minutes, 
in the morning and evening, and I started to feel better. And over the course of six months, I could start to feel the sciatic pain start to go further north. And my understanding, the further south it went, like the worse it would be. So it started to, went from like the toes, started to like, once it got to like my butt, I'm like, I'm going to be good. And went away over a six month period. I went from couldn't walk to being totally fine and made a lot of changes in my life at the time. Yoga was a big part of it, but started to look at, you know, sleep, stress, nutrition. My idea of nutrition back then was steak and martinis at the Palm Steakhouse. I consumed so much. My face is on the wall of the Palm and Midtown Manhattan next to Adam Sandler and Joe Namath. It's kind of insane. Legit. <laughs> is it still there, by the way? Still there. Yeah, the face was much fuller, a lot more alcohol back then. And redder, I bet, more red. We got to double click on this for a second. I challenge anyone, just try that diet just for a week and see how you feel. <laughs> like, it's really shocking. I had a kidney stone in my third, like early. Third. No. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinarily painful. So I still eat meat, but make sure it's grass fed. Not as much. Like I was just, I wasn't healthy. And so it was through that experience where I said, you know, wow, everyone's got health and wellness wrong. You got to rewind to 2008, nine, you know, the word wellness was equated with spa. Anything that was a little bit more holistic was like new agey, crazy, preach the choir of the West side of LA, Brooklyn, Boulder, Venice. We all know the stereotype. In our view, you know, the future was a little bit more holistic, but it was scientifically driven. And it was this blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, environmental well-being. And they were all connected. One word, mind, body, green. And that was like the why. And, it, you know, and I'll segue like the why has evolved as I've aged. I'm 48. Men in my family have a terrible track record with longevity. Father died of heart disease at 47. One grandfather died of heart disease at 49. The other cancer at 44. We've got two little girls, age six and four. I want to be around for quite some time. And I want to be healthy and I want to be mobile. And, you know, the, the why is segued to longevity. And we kind of view this as like the 1.0, the 2.0 and the 3.0. And the science is so great. There are so many great thought leaders where they said, you know what, we can, you know, extend lifespan, you know, years. And then there's the, you know, the 2.0, which is health span, because no one wants to how you know people want to be absent of disease they don't want to be living to 100 but spending the last 30 40 years ridden with disease visiting doctors offices you know hooked on pharmaceuticals not being able to do what they want to do you want to ideally live 99 years 11 months 30 days and then rapidly decline overnight if you're going to live to 100 that's like health span you want to be healthy fit and mobile we kind of like the 3.0 of joy span. You know, what's the point of living a healthy, long life, being fit and mobile if you're miserable? And I think so much of the conversation has advanced. You know, we can get there, but it's inaccessible. I think this is where we're very much aligned and impractical for people who have families, who people who work a lot. They take one look at the science or some of the voices out there and they say, like, there's no way I can do this. You know, if I'm doing a three-hour protocol in the morning, Colleen's filing for divorce. Our why has evolved there, where the beauty of the science, the beauty of the work that you do is there's so much that screams access. You know, you can do this. You know, the big objection to our world is I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. And then we totally get it. And that, that's how our why has evolved. You can do it and it can be low cost, no cost, and you can do it with minimal time. And what about you, Colleen? What I will say is that it seems like we had similar. I, I was a big firm corporate attorney and you were a big corporate person, but Tell us about your whole journey. And what I will say uh, quickly, Jason, that you may not know is, and Kelly can tell this story, but you know, he had an injury that drove him to go to physical therapy school that we sort of think is like the first point of us getting into this as well. So we, we can tell that story. Just a, but, just a neck nervous system injury. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead, Colleen, because we'd love to hear your backstory too. Yeah. So I had the very typical kind of corporate America 
experience into my mid thirties until I had one of those breakdown moments that had led me into well-being and, you know, breakthrough. But my hope is that people don't have to have this cosmic kick in the butt from the universe before they start making changes to their lives. And, you know, one of the big questions in the book is when do you know when it's time to change your life? And I wish we would listen to the whispers of our body more from my personal experience of not doing that. Um, So I was in my early thirties working in New York. I had worked at Gap, Walmart, and Amazon. And I went to my Saturday morning ritual of going to Tara Stiles' yoga class. And after class, I called Jason and I was like, I'm having some trouble walking. I'm a little out of breath. Can you meet me? And so we walked around the West Village and I was like, you know, I just need to go home. And so we took the A train home and the steps on this particular train in Brooklyn are really steep. So I collapsed on the stairs and then I you know, kind of did what so many people do. I gaslit my symptoms and I'm like, I'm totally fine. I'm dehydrated. It's a hot day. I worked out too much in class because I didn't want to go to the ER and, you know, then proceeded to nap and be lethargic the rest of the weekend. And come Monday morning, Jason was like, the only way you are going (laughs) to work is if you stop by the doctor's office. So within a couple of minutes, the doctor is like, you're having a pulmonary embolism. And I was completely bewildered and confused. Um, I was expecting like maybe I had a cold or a cough or something along those lines. And he gave me a little sign that said I'm having a pulmonary embolism. It was unclear if he didn't think I would be able to articulate what was happening to me once I got to the NYU ER or unclear if I'd be able to direct someone of what the issue was and when I got there. I just have to like visualize this, like an actual sign that says I'm having a pulmonary embolism. Yeah. Like the way car drivers used to hang your name. Yeah, yeah. Your sign like, yeah, like we're picking you guys up at the airport. Totally. Because when you're in New York City, you know, you don't call an ambulance. The faster way for you to get to the ER at that point in time was to hop in a cab. It was just when Uber was getting its stride. And when we got to the ER... I just have to stop. That is the most progressive rad physician ever. Hey, I'm going to call ahead, but here's a sign. Let me just rummage through. No, no, no. Pulmonary embolism. (laughs) Holy crap. But also, in my mind, was did he think she would make it? Like, right. is, like if she were to pass out in, in a, the cab, cab and it's someone like someone find, find you. It's like, right, right, right. And you're just laying in the back, and they pull up in the ER, and you have this sign on your chest. I mean, wow, that's like bananas. there's a, there's a lot there with that sign. Harry- I would say. Yeah, and when you see a 32 year old woman, your first thought isn't pulmonary embolism. You know. So once I got to the ER, I learned I had like showers of clots, and was a pulmonary embolism. And that started what was a very long road to recovery where, you know, there's blood thinners that they have you on as you work through the clots, but it was truly an invisible illness that I looked fine on the outside, but it was a struggle to breathe. And that was the first time I had really thought about my breath for so long. And I remember looking at the stories of women who had had pulmonary embolisms and you know, trying to find hope in their stories of resilience and making it through. And when a 32-year-old has showers of clots in their lungs, you know, hematologists and Western medicine, conventional medicine was running every single test. And I don't actually have any genetic predispositions to clotting. So the only conclusion they could come to was that the birth control pill and I were not a good combination, even though I had been on it for about 10 years. And I remember at my student health center in college, when I got on it, they made you take a multiple choice test, but all of the questions were more about not getting pregnant. And I I knew there was risks of the birth control pill, but I think I had sidelined them in my brain because it was something 
that was more appropriate for smokers. It was something that was more appropriate for people who were overweight. And so I didn't think of myself within that risk category. And I wrote an article about this experience in Mind, Body, Green that went viral. And so many women had sisters, cousins, you know, friends who had had a similar experience and many of them ending tragically. And I didn't leave this experience being like, you know, I'm never taking medicine again, but I'm left more with the impression of I'm going to be extraordinarily thoughtful and mindful of what I do choose to take as medicine. And it started this really long healing process where I was very confused. It was a game of Marco Polo in the 2010s in New York of going to Western doctors, going to healers and people who were completely outside my very kind of rational thinking brain to try to feel better. Everything from like astrology to intuitives and things that were completely outside my comfort zone, but I felt really lost. And you know, when I look back, like the joy of well-being is the roadmap that I wish I had back then to get better in tune with your body. Because at the end of the day, after all of this work and all this healing, like, you know your body best. You have to be the CEO of your own healthcare symphony. And we are blessed to have access to so many incredible practitioners. But at the end of the day, you have to get in touch with your body to understand what it needs. So that was my original why of kind of how I got to this journey. But now as 43 and a mother of two, it's, you know, really the mental health epidemic and raising two young girls and trying to teach them, you know, resilience in a life that has a lot of inevitable ups and downs and a really scary and frightening mental health crisis for two young girls. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to that for sure. So we've mentioned it a few times, but I just want to flash it here. You guys, congratulations on your new book called The Joy of Wellbeing. And let me just say that I really appreciate that while we have a ton of consilience where we're like, oh, Juliet and I looked at your book and read your book and we're like, oh, we're, okay, we're definitely on the right path. Like these other smart people have figured some things out too. But you really do talk a lot about some of the mental side, the, the spiritual side that I don't know, maybe it's just, you're just too much of a bro, Juliet. <laughs> and you're not in touch with your soft feelings. But I really, you, I feel like you guys picked up and where those Venn diagrams overlap is really powerful, but where they sort of diverge is also really amazing. And these two stories are really remarkable. I think it's interesting that both of you came out of a place that was really dark. You lost your low side of control. You lost your agency. How you identified yourselves, like you're, you know, like you're a killer in New York. And all of a sudden you're like, I can't breathe. I mean, that's really remarkable. Or, hey, I'm an athlete entrepreneur and this, <laughs> my brain is like, nope, no, you're not. I mean, this, it's really a remarkable place to start from. Do you feel like that is one of the places that gives you the perspective of understanding that this kind of common experience that we're all having is how do I feel like I belong in my body and in my community? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think whenever coming to a space, specifically our space, like when you're searching for answers, being humble. And humbled. <laughs> exactly. Humbled and humble. And I think I was smart enough, we were smart enough to know we didn't know everything. And we also, I think a core belief that we share is we believe in multiple perspectives. Doctors, researchers, shamans, whatever you prescribe to, these people are also humans. Some of them have God complexes. No one's perfect. We believe in multiple perspectives. We believe in curiosity. We believe in the science is always evolving. And we believe in checking ourselves at the door with no ego 
we come as listeners and, and learners and lifelong learners. And although we're, we're not credentialed, I think that's a core skill that many people could use right now because health is nuanced. It's constantly changing. We believe in bio-individuality. And I think because we came from places where we were at rock bottom, that's how we've played in the space, if you will. Yeah, and I think it's given us a lot of empathy for a lot of different perspectives of people who are on various parts of a healing journey. But I think the biggest opportunity aren't for people like us who had these very specific kind of edge cases. It's when you look at you know, where we are right now and all of the metrics around health and well-being, there's never been more health and wellness in the world, but yet we're so unwell. 70% of us are overweight. When you look at the statistics of people who call themselves very happy, we're at an all-time low of only 12%. So clearly there's, it's not yielding yes. the right results for everyone who and didn't have this, you, this edge case. And you guys have shared this and we agree, you know, there's, we're spending so much on this category. It's grown so much. There's so much excitement yet. You know, if you look at the numbers, we're not doing so well. And it feels like the fitter getting fitter and everyone else is just kind of flailing. So what are we doing? We couldn't agree with that overall sentiment more. And, you know, something we've been talking about as we parade around and talk on podcasts, right? Like there's more and more and more information available. And, you know, I think our space is doing a cool thing in leaning into the science a little bit, but again, not sure that that lean in is actually helping people make practical change in their lives. Um, and then the other point you made, which is something that we've sort of struggled with, even just on a business level is, you know, how do we get people to care before they have these dark moments or catastrophic situations? Because often, you know, because we're in, you know, our, our sort of expertise is, you know, teaching people how to be mobile and take care of their bodies. And oftentimes the first time people come to us and sort of realize this is important is after they've been injured in some way. And then, you know, once they see that there are tools out there that they can actually make change in their own body and help themselves feel better at home on their living room floor or on their gym floor, you know, they're converts for sure. But, you know, we have struggled over the years to say, how do we encourage people to, it's delayed gratification, but how do we encourage people to put some input into their bodies before they get injured? And it sounds like, you know, you guys are on the same quest. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, I couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, most people don't think about these things until they're taken away. And I think that's reasonable for a lot of people, right? Just like, uh, how could I possibly Human keep nature, this in my head all the time yeah. and get my kids to, you know, water polo practice? Exactly. And the, the other problem here is this is another why behind the book. It's the state of media right now. Get airtime, extremes, play. There's a study in the book we referenced that came out of, the, of Wharton where they looked at the most emailed list of the New York Times, essentially like, these are the most widely read articles in the world. And they want to see if there were patterns in terms of emotion. And yes, there were patterns. And the top three emotions that determined virality were anxiety on anger. Anger was number one. Anger increased virality by 34%. In other words, if someone reads an article in the New York Times and it caused them to be angry, that article was more likely to be read and shared. We don't think the New York Times is unique here. We think this is social media. If you take a look at your Instagram feed, like what's getting, for the most part, it's having an extreme point of view, nuance. I do have a lot of angry cats on my Instagram. <laughs> it's true. There you go. And, and that's an issue. 
And how do we shift this conversation to be more about the fundamentals? How do you, you have to bake a cake before you get to put on the frosting is what our friend JJ Virgin always says. And right now the conversation is too much about the frosting and all the fun Malibu bro, you know, kind of wellness or the Kardashian wellness on the other side of it. Like you see it, you know, playing out both ways, you know, the extreme Malibu and Calabasas playing out in, (laughs) in very different ways. But how does this just become the way we live? And how do we just integrate this into our lives? And I think it does start, you know, really young. And I'm grateful that, you know, our children are learning things that were never taught to me in school. And they come home with box breathing and they come home, you know, talking about breathing through your nose. But obviously there's so much more work to be done and not everything they're learning clearly, you know, the food is somewhat catastrophic in the school system. But I do think these rituals have to be modeled to younger generations so that kids see us being healthy. They see us breathing certain ways. They see us being thoughtful around the eight pillars that we have in the joy of well-being so that these rituals are just the way we live. And it's not like this other thing that we're doing. And now we're going to go out and be well. (laughs) That's right. I want to just pause for a second because I think the four of us can deep dive into some of the grittiness. But I would love to know when you two got together and decided, hey, let's become podcasters, writers, entrepreneurs, was that an obvious connection fit to you? Well, not at all. I've heard you guys talk about this subject and we're actually shockingly aligned here as well. Tell and me just, how. Just so you guys know, we we consider ourselves to be a sort of accidental entrepreneurs. You know, like you guys started off on completely different career paths. Kelly's was sort of semi-aligned, but still, you know, we were definitely doing a more traditional route and took this but extreme. People right ask turn. us all the time, "How do you work together?" And yeah. I'm like, "Well, don't you run a household together? Don't you raise kids together?" I'm like, "Really? It's just an extension of that." I mean, don't you solve a thousand problems? Doesn't your wife drive you crazy a thousand times a day? No, she doesn't. But uh. 9,999 times. But I think it's really the two of you working together is anomalous. Could you just talk about how that came to be and and what that's like? Because I can't imagine. I got this tattoo below my elbow over 10 years ago. And I was like, because I'll never work for anyone ever again. That was me literally burning the bridge. I was like, oh, look, I'm unhirable. That was so like 2010 because now everyone has tattoos. You could could have like any job now. For me, for me, I personally believe that my tattoo also meant I was like, look, I just I'm I can never go back and work for anyone else. I I'm gonna cut the cord here, and I also now feel like I couldn't possibly work with any other person. There's no other place for me. I'm become so hyper specialized working with Juliet that I was like, nope, can't be on a team. Couldn't work anywhere. You know, how do you manage it as a married couple and? A- and working how, together. And how do you even come know, to do be? Do you have like strategies and things you do? Because I know a lot of couples who like do yoga together and they don't like launch fitness empires. It's a great question. And, and so I'm an entrepreneur. So even when I was an equities trader, I worked for a company, but I was very much a solo producer. It was me and my P&L. That's all that mattered. And then was an entrepreneur. So it's kind of in my blood. And I remember when I, I, I said to Colleen, it was it's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go with this. We have other co-founders, but I'm going all in. Our other co-founders kept their day jobs. Colleen kept her job. She was supporting me. And I said, you know what? I can figure it in six months, we'll get to revenue. Six months. This was in 09. Three years. And it was brutal. We had just gotten married. I was wrong in terms of the, the, 
the trajectory to revenue. And we have such different mindsets about entrepreneurship. And I, and I think over the past decade, it's been glamorized, you know, so much without kind of showing all of the pain, the ups and downs, pain. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just saw that, that article about the, all the, the influencers who have left making TikTok influences and gone jobs because it was too stressful. Working for yourself was gnarly. Only eating what you could kill was brutal. And they were like, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, oh, look at you little, this failed entrepreneurs on TikTok. No, totally. And I grew up without any rose-colored glasses on entrepreneurship. My parents are OG entrepreneurs before this whole wave of venture capital. You know, they own car washes in Los Angeles. And I remember growing up understanding that if it rained, my parents wouldn't make any money that day. And like, I was not someone who aspired to be an entrepreneur because I was very clear on a lot of the downsides from growing up in my family. So we did not see you know, we didn't have the same kind of risk outlook. And I was very employable because of my corporate background and stayed on to salary and uh, health insurance for quite a long time, kind of until I had my my breakdown moment. But it would have been catastrophic for our marriage if I had not. I'm never the person who's like, go all in without a safety net, without income, because financial well-being is the most unsexy thing to talk about in the entire well-being conversation. But, you know, if you are not clear on, you know, where your rent's coming from, where your health insurance, kind of these basic fundamentals, it is adding so much stress. And there are so many people, you know, living with this stress daily, but I would just never invite it for an entrepreneurial endeavor into my life. So, Luckily, we had a lot of great therapy at the beginning of our marriage. And I think it not only helped like our personal marriage and kind of how we view money and talk about financial well-being, but it also created a shared outlook on how we run the company today, um, which is running a profitable business, which makes sense in 2023. But, you know, five years ago, people would be like, what are you guys doing? And I think we are very lucky in that we have different skill sets. We actually work well together which not all couples do. It's not for everyone. We know each other's strengths and weaknesses and it works. And we know a lot of couples in our space too, where it's been, it's destroyed their marriage. But for us, it works. I'm always working on being kind of less rattled by the lows. I never celebrate the highs too much, but having someone who you can talk to at an intimate level is to me such a huge, huge benefit. the, The highs are higher and sometimes the lows are lower because you're sharing it, but you have someone to share it with. Look, being an entrepreneur, a solo entrepreneur is very difficult to to have someone you can confide in and and share and and live and share specifically in our space. Like wellness isn't our job, it's our, we hate the well-being. Well-being isn't our job, it's our life, it's our passion. And so it transcends work. It's not nine to five for us, it's 24 seven. I wanna double click on that and acknowledge first of all that the only reason we have a house is because Juliet was employed by someone and as a, like I was running our my own physio practice out of our gym, yeah. and they were, they were yeah, like, like I, that is like they wouldn't allow <laughs> us. Like I had to be the only one on our mortgage when we bought our house. You know, even though Kelly was making money, but because I had a regular standard issue like W two job. We understand. Yes, I thought you brought something up. Is that you know when the stress is on and you feel like you're really working hard, it's hard to be vulnerable and hard to be able to communicate. And one of the things that I can speak to is a 50-year-old man now who has a feeling. I have, don't have many, but a feeling now. 
As he I've has re- one feeling. I've realized I really wasn't, there was a time in my life, especially in the late 30s, when we were just the worst, we were the thinnest we were, where Juliet, you know, was the only person I could talk to in the world, which was amazing. But also I had not spent any energy creating any kind of network where I could be vulnerable and intimate besides, you know, Juliet. And it was hard to do that to Juliet with Juliet because, you know, we had so much at stake. So I, I just think that that what you just said there, I just want to highlight that for people that you have to create relationships where you can be brutally honest and brutally vulnerable if you're going to withstand this thing called life, especially as an entrepreneur. I really appreciate that because I feel we know a lot of people are just, they're just shells of themselves and they look like they should have everything, but they don't have the opportunity to, you know, really connect in a, in a meaningful and vulnerable way. Men are terrible here. You know, if I were to to rewind and go back to those moments, if I would have said to my, you know, my very masculine guy friends who I played basketball with, they would say like, what are you doing? Like, dude, go back to Wall Street. Like, what are you like? <laughs> and we're terrible about asking for help. We're terrible about keeping in touch. Women are far superior than men in terms of communication and asking for help and being vulnerable. But it's this bigger theme of relationships and community can have the biggest impact on your mortality and lower it by 45%. Yes. And obviously nutrition and movement is important, but we talk about those in such an outsized way. And we want to bring a conversation towards all the connection influencers. Where are they on TikTok? Where are they on Instagram? Encouraging us to keep in touch with an old friend. You know, we don't have this kind of etiquette and protocols for how we should interact in this new world. And there was a wonderful Wall Street Journal article recently about how so many women are realizing the importance of IRL connection, that they are treating it the same way they would a work KPI. And hey, I want to get together live with one woman for coffee a week because people are realizing that even with or without the science, that proves that that you know, texting a friend is not having the same impact on your brain as the oxytocin you get from when you meet and connect with someone IRL and are able to say, hey, how are you really doing? Yeah, you know, I read this article actually in the New York Times like six months ago that was like the power of the four minute phone call or something. For whatever reason, it just kind of hit me right at the right time. And so ever since then, I've just been, you know, like, trying to find these little opportunities to have like three, four minute phone calls with my friends, including a lot of the, you know, I'm sure you guys have them too. You have these sort of lifelong friends that you're friends with, but you don't talk to as much. You only connect with them once or twice a year or something. So, you know, I've been trying to reach out to those people and it doesn't need to be some big, long conversation and time commitment where we catch up on every last detail, but it's just like, check in, how you doing? And even that can be a nice way of connection. But I want to add a couple of things. I think I couldn't agree more. I mean, I was at some fitness conference like five or six years ago and Kelly was speaking, but I was watching a different presenter and there was just a graph up there about the things that impact our well-being and longevity and far and away above all the things that we all love to talk about, you know, sleep, nutrition, walking, all the things that we share and love was connection and community. And, you know, that also, you guys are friends with Dan Buettner, but we know from the Blue Zones that that seems to be a huge part of why there's so many centenarians in those communities. So it's so critical. And I think it's so important that you guys are talking about this in your book. And one thing I do want to ask, though, because we've referred to it a few times, and I would love for you to elaborate on it is, you know, can you tell us why you guys relate to and use the word well-being 
over wellness. And, and I have to say it was one of my favorite parts of your book, because even as you could tell, when we started this conversation, I was like, welcome, we're all in the health, you know, fitness, wellness community. And somehow, I don't know if it's because I came from another place, but I always struggle to feel that I personally relate to like any one of those things. Like I don't see myself necessarily as a fitness person. And there's a lot of weird, like I'm pretty middle of the road as a human. There's a lot of weird stuff and wellness that I, no one wants me to take my shirt off. Yeah. And so I, I don't know. I, no one, there's just, there's just some, you know, I I've never felt comfortable in those green bunny 13 does. Yeah. One quick story for you guys. There was some article written about me, which we'd laugh about in this office a lot, where it was like, Juliet Starrett, lawyer turned personal trainer. And I was like, wow, okay, that's so not at all what I do. But that's that's a, and, the sign that that person had no idea how to describe yeah, so, what it so is. So anyway, I do think these words are really important. And I love how you guys, you know, like really open your book and make a really clear case for why well-being is what we're all after and what you guys are about. So tell us a little bit about that. We share your same complications with the word wellness. And, you know, even in the early days of Mind Body Green, we never used the word wellness. It was just starting to be in the zeitgeist, but we talked about it in the sense of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, environmental well being. That's obviously a mouthful to describe what we do. But I think, especially now, as two parents, as entrepreneurs, we look at the wellness landscape and the literal cacophony of voices between social media, between all the different platforms, between the doc stars out there. And we look at a world that, you know, spans, we talked a little bit about the bro culture of biohacking, where there is so much rigidity, there's so much protocols, there's an assumption that we have the time and resources to do them. And Juliet, I know you share this, you know, frustration of a morning routine that is just not possible if you are involved in your children's morning routine and getting them to school. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's Kardashian wellness, and it's so many treatments and things and protocols to do in a very different, perhaps more vanity-driven world. And we look at all of this wellness, and there's never been so much of it, and we don't have the time, the resources to do it, and our routines are so simple and integrated and uncomplicated. So there was a very intentional decision to not call this book The Joy of Wellness and to move the conversation from rigidity to hopefully one of well-being, which to us is more abundance, more joy, and a lot less restriction. It feels like it's about the frosting, so to speak. You know, you got to bake the cake before the frosting. And look, we do like the frosting. I'm wearing an Aura, a Whoop, and we sleep on an eight-sleep mattress. So like, we do like some of the frosting, but like, you got to bake the cake. You got to get the fundamentals. And I think all the focus in wellness is around the frosting. And the reality is, and the data is, I think, very strong here. Most people aren't getting the fundamentals. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentus. One of the things that is crucial for people to be successful in adding and supporting nutrition is accessibility, how often someone can replicate something and how consistent they can be with it, right? Yeah, and convenience really helps with that. Oh man, <laughs> it is the magic. We see that everyone is pretty much under on board with, hey, collagen can really help support your ligaments, support your connective tissue, but it's really difficult to get it. The collagen shot by Momentus is like so easy to take, so easy to bring with you, so easy to throw in your bag. You have all these kids in the summer playing games. If you don't, I mean, you can jump in the, in the car and be like, oh, I've got my collagen right there. Boom. I have to say that of all the things that have changed my 
ability to be consistent, this collagen shot has been it. It is a transformation in getting regular collagen supplementation when I train. Yeah. And if you look at our any of our backpacks or our cars, you'll always find a miscellaneous collagen shot around. And we're like, oh, I didn't take my collagen today, but here's one sitting here in my backpack. It's so yeah. easy and transportable. Not all collagen is the same. Not all collagen is third-party tested. Not all collagen comes from good sources. Not all collagen has actually the studied versions of collagen, right? And so what you're going to see is the momentous collagen shot ticks all the boxes. I cannot stress enough how gnarly the supplement world is and how gross it is. Make sure your all your supplements are third-party tested, third-party valid, validated, so they actually contain what they say they contain and not a bunch of other crap. Momentous leads the way for this. Go get your collagen shots. It's livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Yeti and specifically the Yonder water bottle. And I'll start by saying that anyone who knows us or has been to our house in particular knows what huge fans we are of all things Yeti. But the Yonder bottle is something that came out more recently and really, I think, sort of fit a missing piece for us in our Yeti quiver. Yeah, there are some times where I needed a light bottle with a better cap than sort of what existed in the world. I wanted to bring my heavy sort of, you know, metal bottles, which we, of course we love and take everywhere. But the Yonder solves a big problem for me. It's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit easier. And check this out. I actually sometimes can tell how much water I've consumed because I can see through it. <laughs> I love that about this bottle. Yeah, I mean, we use this bottle for travel, for backpacking, for outdoor adventures. Anytime that weight is an issue and we don't want to carry our, our heavier insulated bottles, we use these Yonder bottles. And I have put this thing, we have put it through the test. Yeah, we put it through the test. Backcountry I mean, skiing in, in yeah. Japan, like in the desert. I mean, really yeah. Like backpacking, river trips, this thing is bomb travel. Proof. It's bomb proof and has all the great things that all Yeti products have. It's just a little bit lighter. Yeah. So if you want to check out a Yonder bottle for yourself, go to thereadystate.com slash Yeti. I love that you guys have the cake frosting analogy. Kelly and I, the analogy that we use is base camp because we went through and continue to be in like an Everest phase of our lives. And we've read like every single Everest book and we've watched every Everest documentary and we have literally zero desire to climb Everest. But, but for we're going to Everest reason, Space Camp for a 20 year anniversary. Yeah, for some reason, we're captivated by all things Everest. And so we think of it as base camp, right? Like your average person, we just need to get them to base camp. We want them to be- We're arguing start. about which color yeah. shoes right. are but the then, best but then like, way to assemble in our the industry, Kumbu. Right? They're already up on the Kumbu Icefall and they haven't even slept last night, you know? And so I love the cake frosting me, analogy as well. Let me ask something. Um, something that I think resonates with me is that we really are talking about how to be human beings. And what does that mean? We discovered and we started saying in the pandemic, the human brain is only a brain if it's around other brains. And what we saw was as soon as you isolated people, oh, that did not go well for community or society or personal health and, you know, just our ability to navigate. One of the things I think listening to you kind of talk about your way into these conversations, you know, we came out of performance. That was the way we backed into this stuff, right? Like that was the technical. And what I found as a physio, sort of that bias was that, you know, it was really difficult for me to talk about psychology and mindset and all of those things. 
but I backed into that stuff. Maybe it's my own like rejection. My mother is a psychologist, you know, I, I get that. But I was able to back into a lot of these nuanced conversations about feelings, about connection, about being on a team through physical practice that if we could just get you to start to take care of your body, starting from the top down sometimes is really difficult. The brain, you get this with chronic pain, you know, I'm like, hey, you're just too stressed. So be less stressed, bro. And you're like, what? I'm going to cut you. Like that doesn't work, you know, sometimes. But having those conversations from the top, of course, work. But also you found that moving was the thing that started this conversation of, hey, I, and now I can have different beliefs about my own back or beliefs about my agency. And that's what I think is so wonderful about your book is that it's really this nice top down. Let's make sure that we're addressing this psycho-emotional, spiritual aspect of ourselves. But then also it's rooted in the fact that we can also begin with the physical practice up because we see that people are so in their heads and, you know, and I think this is particularly interesting to me right now because we're working with a lot of athletes in sort of our other day job who are really struggling with mindset and confidence and self-belief and raising two daughters and watching the number of kids around them really struggle with those feelings of adequacy and feeling, you know, not and battling depression and all the other things. You know, it's really in our faces all the time that we're not doing a good job. And what it's led me to believe is, wow, I wonder if where kids are sleeping, if they're eating, do they feel tired at the end of the day? Those things. So I guess it's a long way of saying that I appreciate that we've addressed top-down very much as important. It's the thing. And then, but the bottom-up thing is the maybe the easier way, and or, or that's my perspective, that it's been easier to initiate these conversations about how you are in your community if we start with physical practice first. And do you think I'm right there? Or is that, can you see what I'm talking about? Look, I think getting to, I think for us and our journey and our mission, so much comes back to like the why. What is our intention for our life as we age? What brings us joy? What's the life we want to live? And what first came to mind, I think, to us was our children and the idea of having grandchildren. And what's the vision we have? It's being able to, you know, I'm 48, we have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, being able to run with that child, being able to play soccer with that child, maybe being blessed as being around and our children having children and being able to do the same thing, being able to pick up a 30-pounder. And like, what is this? So much of this comes back to, you know, okay, assume cognitive decline is, is not a variable we're facing. You know, you want to be mobile. Like our vision of our future, our intentionality, we want to be mobile. We want to be strong. Like that brings us joy to be able to go to Disney World and walk all day. Day. 25,000 steps at Disney World. Yeah. Totally. Like I think it's one of the things mobility and being able to walk and feeling good in your body is so foundational. And when that's not the case for someone who's gone through that, life isn't fun. Yeah. And I think the motivations change throughout the seasons of life. And we've seen them change at a macro level here at My Buddy Green in that, you know, 10 years ago, it was nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. And I remember, you know, even meeting with advertising partners who would be like, Colleen, why are you talking about depression so much? That's just, that's just not much fun. And obviously now a wonderful. Where's the fun, Colleen? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was like, you know, it's an algorithm. <laughs> those are the articles you can share that and you're clicking on those pieces. And now with the mental health epidemic, you know, the one pro of it is that, you know, we are able to talk about these things more candidly and more open, but, you know, 
my own personal motivations kind of change throughout the seasons of life, throughout the decades of life. And it's just how do we start getting people to care earlier before the body breaks, before there's a movement issue, because it's just a way to feel your best. Yeah. And I mean, I do think the key is the kids. I mean, I'm not saying it's too late for all of us that are not kids. And I think it's, you know, people it's too late for you. you know, Go pe- on. People ask us often like, OK, I just got your book built to move. I'm 60. Is it too late to start? And we're like, no, it's never too late to start. You know, that's a key thing. But I do think and we follow, I think, the same parenting strategy that you guys do, which is modeling. That's the only strategy we know. You know, we just try to implement as many healthy habits as we can and, you know, make sure we create community and have friends around and travel and, you know, have like a full life of joy. And that's what we try to model for our kids. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it is difficult. And I just, I have to read this quote. I put it up on my Instagram yesterday that I love from your book. It's health and happiness are so deeply connected that in the long term, you can't have one without the other. And I think that's kind of what Kelly was getting at, right? It's like, it's like, on some deep and important level, you know, you know, you can't talk about depression or mental illness or anything without, without some of these physical practices and making sure those things are aligned and, you know, making sure people are sleeping and eating a vegetable and walking and creating community. And, you know, I think in kids cases, it's impossible to talk about this without saying the impact of social media, which is, you know, you guys haven't experienced yet, but is, you know, like we feel like we are the parenting generation of, we feel like we're guinea pigs. And not even feel like we're guinea pigs. You know, we all sort of felt pressure to give our kids phones by middle school and they're on them and they're on TikTok. You know, it's just like we feel like we're guinea pigs and the data is clear that it's a problem. Happy and healthy, I think, also in our world, there's been a disconnect. Some of the healthiest, most health forward, brilliant minds and influencers in our world who we know personally are miserable. Some of them are open about it. Some of them aren't. And what's the point? This is like the joy span, like a joy. Like what's the point of being like, you know, jacked and like have great lab work and VO2 max. (laughs) A1C nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh man, my hemoglobin is just amazing, right? Like what's the point of all this and how fast I can go and all the tests. Maybe it's Gattaca, right? That I can like, I could take Lisa's like hermetocrit and like judge her and maybe as a partner. And, you know, what's the point of all this? You know, there was a point for me where I was, you know, I I do the lab work partly because like I want to be here. I do 28 vials of blood twice a year, which is, you know, twice a year and I get the heart tests and so forth. And there was a point where I was doing four times a year. And my doctor, Frank Littman, was like, Jason, what are you doing? Like, stop, like just do twice a year. You're good. And like, it's this idea of, okay, like maybe I get the perfect labs and I'll get hit by a bus or like uh, you're, you're becoming so miserable. And I think, you got to get to your why. Like, why Why do you want to be fit? Why do you want to be mobile? Why do you want to be around? Like, you want to be happy. You want to have great relationships. We ask those questions of ourselves very often. Mm-hmm. We have two on this journey of what is the point of all these of all these smoothies? <laughs> I am going to quote that forever. That is like the guy holding a sign. Who's drinking all these smoothies? I think that's so good. We're not TCM practitioners. They have a distinct point of view depending yeah. on the season. But. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it gets to this point and, you know, I go back to the life I was living in my early 30s of being able to answer what is it that brings you joy? And there are so many moments in time where I think if you ask me that in my early 30s, I'd be like, well, getting margaritas after work. And that is a wonderful like socialization part, but it can't be your only why. And how do we really get in touch with 
what are the amazing experiences that we want to cultivate and intentionally create on the 4,000 weeks that we have on this wonderful planet? And I'll just share, you know, this is a study I think everyone in health and wellness needs to know about. It's in the book, the Rosetto study. It's become like my favorite study. And look, nutrition and movement are paramount, but like I share this because I think it's so important given the mental health epidemic and the loneliness epidemic. Rosetto is a small town in rural Pennsylvania in the 1950s. This is when heart disease enters America, except in Rosetto. Men under 65, no heart disease. Men under 55, half that of the nation. And so like, what are people doing here? This is amazing. Well, they're smoking, they're drinking, they're eating lots of pasta and meatballs. It uh, makes absolutely no sense. And what they found when they took a deeper look is these people were like the happiest people in the world. They, their social connections were like immensely powerful. Multi-generational living was paramount. All the, the fun stuff they were doing was in the context of celebration. It was breaking bread with neighbors, drinking with neighbors. There were parades, there were parties, there were celebrations. These people were so incredibly connected. In the 1960s, the community started to break up. People moved away and heart disease caught up with the national average. I'm not saying do all these things, but I think you get the point. Like, what is our why? We need connection. We need to be happy. Like all the exercise, all the lab work, all the protocols in the world aren't going to help you if you're broken emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And we all come from somewhere, right? I think that's, you know, we learn our health practices. We learn our self-care. We learn how to eat. We learn how to cook theoretically, you know, from somewhere. And what we're seeing is definitely there's a gap there. Like we're all just kind of blunder into the scene and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, kale, like I, vegetables, you know, sleep. I didn't know. Kale is no longer in. <laughs> it's out. I want to make kale great again. That's what we're trying to do here. <laughs> you know, it is interesting to be as exposed as Juliet and I are to the world of performance, of data, and then smack into the reality of having a 15-year-old who only eats brown food. <laughs> right. And like, you know, I, you know, if she's going to eat a fruit or vegetable today, it's because I blended it up in a, you know, protein shake smoothie thing for her and snuck her in. And I'm still counting the number of blackberries she's eating, like three more blackberries, come on, two more blackberries, Caroline. And like, you know, here's a kid who's exposed to everything. Where do you think, because I think this is really the rubber hits the road piece is that we have this nice and then we have like reality. Having these two children, I would love to know simultaneously on the first hand, what have you re-evaluated in terms of what's practicable? And then simultaneously, how do you balance not becoming what we've learned from our daughters is called an almond mom. So the almond mom is the mom who pushes or the parents who pushes diet culture onto their kids and is counting almonds as a snack. Can you talk about those two things with your own family? Because I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think we really had to focus in on what are going to be the needle movers that are going to deliver the best results, because we also have a daughter who, whose palate is very brown. And we've had to reset our own expectations and, you know, think through what's going to have the biggest impact and where she is right now in life. We're like, please have protein. Yeah. Make sure you have protein at every meal. You know, we have another daughter who loves broccoli. It's a different set of challenges with each daughter, but it's really just focusing in on the needle movers because as parents to two girls, we are sensitive of diet culture and orthorexia. And some people have real issues with certain food groups and some people don't, but like to restrict for other reasons. So we want to establish and model healthy behaviors. We like bringing them to the gym in our building when no one's there just so they can like have fun and see us working out and do some push-ups and like do a little sit-up, some jumping jacks and really just focus our energy on the things that are going to move the needle. 
And protein is a big focus for them. And that's kind of our role. Like you got to have protein. Our four-year-old who wants to be like her big sister, we've convinced her this is your vehicle for growth. Like it's pro- you want to grow like your big sister, you need protein. So that we always try to get them to consume protein. You know, they, they have, we have dessert at night. They'll have treats. We try to push for better treats. We try to educate our daughters. Like our one daughter, you know, knows that I do not like pirate's booty. That is a staple. And I try to explain, like, this is how you read a label. Like I can get you a better option. You know, we can buy lesser evil paleo puffs if you want a similar <laughs> experience. Better for you. It's a mouthfeel. Let's be honest. It's about the mouthfeel. Some of it like comes in, some of it doesn't. Like we're trying to teach them. But at the same time, you know, birthday parties happen. Cake yeah, happens. Yeah. The yeah. juice box yeah. happens. The needle movers do our breath, like teaching our older daughter who snores to learn to breathe through her nose during the day so that she can start that. And she's starting it in athletics too. And being thoughtful around mental health and anxiety. Because when I was little, I definitely had anxiety, but we didn't have the vernacular to actually say I had anxiety, just in hindsight. How did your family deal with it? They didn't. It was the 80s. <laughs> what are you talking about? No, no you one went, dealt with any. You bought Froyo? Yeah, I was like, there was. Pinkberry. <laughs> yeah, probably got some Pinkberry. <laughs> I didn't mean to answer your question for you, but you know. But you did. <laughs> and succinctly and, you know, spot on. So, you know, we're, we're thoughtful about making sure our daughter isn't striving for perfection. And, you know, yeah. it's a word we try to strike from her vernacular. And what you said about your generation of parents being guinea pigs, you know, I agree and have so much empathy. We have parent friends who have kids that are older who literally have to lock their kids' devices in a safe because their kid is not able to restrain themselves. And we're all addicted in varying degrees, but our hope as you know, eternal optimists is that by the time our children come of age, we'll understand that this is like giving your child crack cocaine. And obviously the moms aren't going to all do it and be peer pressured in. You know, that's our knock on wood hope because it's hard to be a human well, bless your little hearts. You're like, you know, it's going to be fine. They won't need phones. Um, They're going to go buy their own phones around the corner. It's totally Yeah, you fine. know, I, a couple of stories, I implemented this rule when my kids were your kid's age, when we would go to the grocery store and they wanted, because sometimes I didn't even want to take them to oh, the this store. Is, because, this is so good. Because they would be so annoying. You know, every aisle is like, can we get this? Can we get this? Can we get this? And that was my whole conversation. And so I created this rule where I was like, when you can read everything on the nutrition label, all the words, like correctly, then you can buy that. And the thing they really wanted early on were those, you know, those orange crackers with peanut butter in the middle. Tasty. Oh, Remember yeah. those? They're like two, they're like, they come in they're like not a six tasty, pack. But they're and, associated but with a happy part of my like, life. The ingredients are on there, but they're in like one point font. And it's a lot of really like scientific-y sounding stuff. Cause of course it's not really made of food. And actually by the time our daughter Georgia was like 10, she actually was able to fully pronounce it. And then I was like, all right, ding, 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 today's your day, you know? And then of course she got them and they like weren't that exciting or whatever. But I think the point to be made, especially with kids and food is that it's at some point gotta be good enough. I think I started off, you know, gritting my teeth because our daughter Caroline's best friend down the street literally had like, they had like Wonder Bread and Velveeta in their house and Caroline and loved chicken going she over there. Pizza and chicken tenders. Caroline loved going over there and I was kind of gritting my teeth. And, you know, I realized I was like, you know, what I can control is what we eat in our household and how we talk about in our relationship and our food. And I'm trying to teach my kids to just not be robots. I want them to be able to go and make their own choices and make bad choices and learn what makes their bodies feel good. And and so it really is sort of like a, it's got to be good enough philosophy. 
I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, because they're going to go to the birthday party where they just eat like a Safeway cake and seven juice boxes. And, you know, that's got to be okay. You know, you don't want to be the weird parent that sends your kid to the birthday party with like a Tupperware of who knows what. Do you, you remember? Know, do you, that has a lot of social that? consequences. <laughs> Here's my sashimi chicken breast and my brown rice. <laughs> Put it with the other juice boxes. Um, do you remember that Caroline started to go to parties and she would only eat a little bit of the frosting because she discovered that the cake made her feel sick. And she just was like, eh, I don't really I into don't it. like cake. Yeah, really um, so one thing I want to go back to with you guys to talk a little more about, and it's a subject near and dear to our hearts, which is this accessibility conversation. Mm. And I think I mentioned earlier, I do think it's a positive in our space that we are leaning into science. And, you know, there's some celebrity physicians that are talking about health and longevity and strength and conditioning. And I do think those are important voices in this space. And I do think the lean into vital. science is important and vital. And at the same time, what we're seeing from that is, I think, even going farther afield in terms of accessibility from even some of the sort of like internet influencer, you know, kind of kooky things we've all seen out there. And I know it's such a value for us and and a challenge because I think the things that are accessible aren't sexy yeah, we on actually, social media. We actually only advocate things that scale. Like we look yeah. backwards and say, this technology is awesome. I'm going to need 50 of them for my 14-year-old gym class. Doesn't work, right? Like that's yeah. how we suddenly were like, this is super cool, but it doesn't scale and we can't reproduce it without lots of machines or lots of technology. Yeah, so there wasn't really a question there, but what are your thoughts on the whole accessibility issue? And I know we've talked about it already a bit. 100%, it's huge. And for look, yeah, this is a big why behind the book. <laughs> National Quitters Day at the gym is January 13th. Like, why? We lost 13 days. Why is that? Because we set ourselves up for failure with expectations that are unrealistic given our lifestyle. And so part of it is like, we believe what you do, there's so much great science, there's so many modalities or practices, find the ones that bring you joy. Because if it doesn't bring you joy, you're not going to do it. I hate running. If you see me running, call the police. Not going to happen. You're running away from something. That's what we know. Yeah. <laughs> Gators. Exactly. And when we looked at the criteria for the eight pillars of the book, it's, is there science? No. Is this accessible? And it's one of the reasons we didn't include sauna, um, but we did include cold. There's a lot of great science around sauna. I don't know that many people that have a sauna unless they're living in, you know. They're expensive. They're expensive. They're expensive. <laughs> they're sauna, true. Florida, you already have a sauna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're expensive and require a gym membership for most people. Yeah. Totally. So how do we focus all of our, you know, energy and power on these fundamentals that meet that criteria that's time tested that are going to move the needle. And this is why we love you guys. Like your work, mobility, walking, movement. Walking is the most underrated practice of them all. Like every cognitive, cardiovascular, like you name it, just being old. We're trying to recategorize walking as like breathing, nutrition, sleep, walking. It's like not exercise. It's not a, an optional. I just have to tell you guys, um, props. I was actually excited. There was a clip from us being on your podcast about me talking about walking that went up, I think it was like a collab and it is doing very well as an Instagram post. And I was really excited because it's not really that controversial. It's, you know, it doesn't meet those criteria. Walking. walking greater than the gym. There still were a few people who chimed in. That's like, you're crazy, whatever. But, but I mean, by and large, it's not controversial. It's not about anger or, you know, it, and I was like so delighted to see that that caught on because I was like, yes, okay. Like we can keep saying these simple things over and over again. And, and I think certain things 
are catching on. And I was delighted to see that walking thing, you know, got some traction out there in the world. Same. Same. And yesterday we posted about walking by water, you know, and that got a lot of engagement, not as much as engagement as your clip, but I, I do think people are looking for these underrated things that they can actually incorporate into their life. So the more we can shine a light on them, and they feel better. I mean, that's really the magic, right? Suddenly you see your neighbors. I mean, as we come back around to the brain, you're outside, you get sunlight. One of our friends who works at Outside Magazine, there's a new app that actually can calculate how much time you're actually spending outdoors. I like that. I, like that. I know, it's pretty amazing. Their whole we'll mission is like- it in the show notes. And people have forgotten that goal, actually, you need to be outside for vision health, for sunlight, for circadian, for all the other things. But what we're finding is that what the research was that kids were spending 40 minutes a day outside, total in aggregate for the whole day. And being in your car is not outside. And being in Costco is not outside. You actually being outside. And somehow they've used the GPS to figure out where you are. But, uh, you know, we just even heard Huberman say, hey, you know, the goal is two hours. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for the average person, I was like, how are you going to get two hours outside? What are we going to sleep outside? Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah, so I wanted to tell you sort of one quick thing about this joy piece. And I really appreciate that you guys have this, you know, that that's your title and it's sprinkled throughout your entire book. And that, you know, again, it's about like, you know, always coming back to what is the why, what brings you joy, I think is so important. And, you know, I think the only place we really address that in our own book is where we have also have evolved in our philosophy on exercise. As you guys know, we started off as athletes and then we were CrossFit people and we still are CrossFit people, but we really evolved in our philosophy about exercise in particular, where we were like, we do not care what you do. Because what we've seen over the years is if you don't enjoy something when it comes to exercise, you're not going to do it. And then it becomes pointless. And man, there are a thousand ways to move your body that count as exercise. And our suggestion is always find the thing that brings you joy. And so I just so appreciate that. That's Shout out Fitness the, Marshall. Yeah, <laughs> Fitness Marshall. I don't we know if you, do you know love, the fitness marshal? Guys, your girls would love no. the fitness marshal, by the way. Shout out to fitness marshal. They're follow along dance videos on YouTube by the most delightful Caleb human. Marshall and his, his staff. Caleb Marshall. And you can just put it right up on your TV and dance, dance, dance. It's so You're fun. not one of our friends unless you've danced to the fitness marshal in our in our living room. We, we use it as a um, warm up sometimes to our workout because we're like, ah, I don't want to do some functional warm up. And I'm like, oh, you Ugh. think you're elite? Let's see. Yeah. Let's say, oh, you're a really a good athlete. Go ahead. Just yeah. follow Allison in the back. Yeah. Like good. she does the easiest dances. And I'm like, oh, Allison just kicked my Yeah, we just today. try to follow Allison and we fail miserably and it's not good, but you know, we move and it's really fun. Well, so. I know we're covering a lot. Would you describe what you think is what you describe as health pileup? I really like that phrase. I think this happens to a lot of people. Some will refer to it as like, I have a case of the 40s <laughs> or a case of the 30s or insert decade where things start to break down. I think a lot of people have a, a practice. Maybe they run, maybe they go to the gym, maybe they do yoga, they do something, they're active and then life happens. You know, maybe, you know, demands of work, maybe they have a child, maybe they get an injury. And then they start to let it go. And that's where we see like the 10 pounds, the 20 pounds. It's like, it's not someone doesn't just spiral out of control, but they get to a place where they feel completely disconnected from their old self. They don't feel good. They're not maybe mobile. They know they're not eating well. They know this and it's frustrating. And I think it happens to so many people where life happens. They don't intentionally say, you know what? Like screw the kale. I'm going all in on Oreos. I don't think that happens. They think, oh, it's a work dinner. Or, oh, it's a work trip. Or, oh, kiddos having this. I'm going to enjoy it. And then next thing you know, it's a couple pounds and a couple more and maybe an injury happens. 
And we talked earlier about this idea of motivation and how do we spark it before you get to this detrimental point. And kind of the opposite of the pileup is the well-being wave of, hey, once you start doing something, whether it's getting seven, eight hours of sleep, maybe it's breathing through your nose, maybe it's going on a walk, maybe it's getting some hours outside, but not two hours, <laughs> getting what you can get. And you start feeling better and momentum begets momentum and you're more inspired to do more stuff. And so that's, you know, an equally important part of the conversation of how we get motivated is like, once you start to feel good, you want to do more of it. I just want to shout out to our, um, our producer, Lisa, who's going to be mortified right now, but we met Lisa. She and her husband are amazing. They're incredible people. Lisa is one of the best movers in our neighborhood. But now after working with us for a long time, you wait for it. She sends me Instagram videos of people doing rear foot elevated split squats. She sends me fitness memes and like specifically the worst fitness memes about the hardest exercises. And I'm like, wow, Lisa, we're riding the wave. I just now have a term for this that Lisa has gotten so into this uh, this way of uh, of shredding and being super jacked all the time <laughs> that uh, she's like, sorry, I got to get on the, the hip just, sled machine. She just died. I she know. just left. It's, it's on, on, on purpose. But anyway, my point is I, I recognize that phenomenon through the uh, memes that, that Lisa sends me about. Bulgarian Spitzkopf. Yeah, but I, I think the health pileup is, I, I love that phrase because I think so many people find themselves in that space at some point in their lives. And, and even people who, like us, who are, you know, deep into the health and fitness space, have athletic backgrounds, you know, you name it. I mean, I think it's not reserved for- No, I'd say uh, yeah, we're it's, almost more dangerous because you, you've gotten away with a lot from genetics or history or you've been coasting. And then all of a sudden you take your eye off it for a second because you're like, I've always been good. You know, I'm good. I'm an athlete. Amazing. So what are you guys looking forward to and what what's, what's next? Because what's next? other than I will say getting a book out into the world is no small task. So congratulations again. Yeah. And hopefully part of, part of what's next is like taking a deep breath and just enjoying this awesome piece of work you've done. But, but what's next? What are you guys looking forward to? Yes, we are taking a breath. Uh, we're still excited to like talk about the book and spread the gospel in the way that you are and, you know, making accessibility more accessible, making it cool, showing that there's real science here, showing that you can actually get results with minimal time. And that is so exciting to us and, and I know exciting to you. And that's what, you know, we think about our, our mission and passion and how it's evolved. You know, the science is very clear. You can find modalities or practices or protocols, whatever you choose to call it, that are low cost, no cost, don't require a lot of time and effort, and will get you real results. And that's what we're so thrilled about because God, the world needs it. Seriously, I'm high-tending you from the other coast. Let everyone know where they might find more information about you and your work and how to follow you on the socials, all that. And also, your book is on Amazon and all the all the places people can find books. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Absolutely. The book is on Amazon and all the places people sell books. So they could go to thejoyofwellbeing.com and then you can find us you know, personally at Jason Wachab and at Colleen Wachab on Instagram and then all things MindBuddyGreen, MindBuddyGreen.com. Our podcast, all your listeners should listen to you and your, our great podcast. Episode. You were fantastic. We've gotten a lot of great comments. Uh, so we're everywhere. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, it's really so fun to get to spend an hour and 15 minutes with you. With our kindred spirits on yes, the other coast. Yes, we're so excited to connect in real life. Like that matters. Come on. I'll, send, <laughs> I'll just slide into your DMs and uh, I'll send, like you, that send you fitness memes and uh, supplements in the mail. We'll hug it out uh, in the future. Thank you all Thanks so again, much. You guys. Thank you. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.